The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's this kind of larger question about the role of social media in our politics, right? Social media has changed or at least amplified and accelerated a lot of media trends that reward sort of more extreme speech, more sensational speech, more vitriolic speech. What I think, as a, a sort of analyst of these topics in my, my sort of think tank job outside of the committee, is that there's a, a sort of dangerous feedback loop in which politicians are rewarded for, for kind of more combative, sometimes more violent rhetoric. Uh, that feeds into the social media ecosystem, generates a ton of engagement, a ton of media activity, then sh- thus strengthening the incentives for politicians to conduct that behavior again. I'm Quinta Jurassic, a senior editor at Lawfare. And this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 8th, 2023. The January 6th committee released its final report on December 22nd, 2022, the capstone of a year and a half of investigative work. But while the report is 800 pages, there's a lot that it doesn't include. The Washington Post recently reported on the work done by investigators looking into the role of social media in enabling the insurrection work that wasn't incorporated into the final document. Today on the podcast, we're excited to bring you a conversation with one of the staffers who worked on that investigation. Dean Jackson is project manager of the Influence Operations Researchers Guild at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He served as an investigative analyst with the January 6th committee, investigating the role of social media in the insurrection. We talked about his experience working on the investigation and what his team uncovered, and walked through what got left out from the final report. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 8th, a January 6th committee staffer on social media and the insurrection. To start off, can you just tell me about your role on the January 6th committee? What work were you doing? I joined the committee um, really as a consultant in March of last year. They had a, a sudden need um, for someone to come in and make a real run at the social media components of their investigation. They had a few staff dedicated to this, but they were sort of split part-time across other issues. And the volume of of documents and, and witnesses and other information that was incoming was was so great that they uh, they really needed somebody who could kind of immediately jump in and, and start sorting through it without needing to be sort of briefed on, on, on all of the background about social media and extremism and you know, I've worked in the think tank space for about 10 years, mostly on 
kind of disinformation, democracy, and social media topics. So I happened to be in the right place at the right time and was able to do that for them. I stayed for about three months, um, leaving right before the hearing started and just really made as big of a swing at the big companies under the investigative portfolio, which were Meta, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. Kind of in, I would say, roughly that order of time spent on each platform. And, uh, you know, I, I, I continued to sort of as needed um, weigh in and, and contribute to the the ongoing investigation. But when I left, they were really pivoting into to packaging their findings for the public. And I uh, so my contribution was really just to move the ball forward as fast as I could in the in the time that I had. How did the social media portion of the investigation interact with the other prongs of the investigation? You had a, a very involved color scheme. We did. Yeah. And um, I, I think I'm not violating any NDAs if I if I break here that uh, I believe the color scheme was actually inspired by uh, the Infinity Gauntlet from the Avengers. <laughs> um, but we were all on color coded teams. And the team I sat on was called the Purple Team. I think the rationale where there was that there was a red team which focused on extremists and a blue team which focused on uh, kind of law enforcement failures. And the purple team kind of had people working on both of those issues as well as the social media component. So it was really a a sort of blend of topics. And we were asked to step back and look at the broader context around the attack, right? Not necessarily things that happened on the day of, right? There were people who were interviewing people who were there. Uh, we were thinking about the months leading up to and the, the social context and sort of how we how we got to the point where something like January 6th was possible. So how it interacted with the rest of the, the committee, um, you know, I, I think the, my colleagues who worked on extremism had relationships with their colleagues on the red team and they would join each other for depositions or share, you know, documents as relevant. Um, I really, um, you know, kind of burrowed into the social media stuff, which was really uniquely purple team. But I, I did um, have relationships across the committee. Um, we kind of shared a sub basement with the green team, which was focused on money trails, uh, and we got we got very close with them. And it was you know a, a good group of hardworking people. And so, anytime you needed something from somebody, um, you just kind of had to run it up the chain and ask. So before we get into the substance of what you found, I want to talk a little bit about the investigative process. Uh, we know uh, just from public documents that have been released, uh, the committee sent out a number of subpoenas to tech companies. There's a, a draft report um, that you put together, which we'll talk about in a bit, that shows that the committee received briefings from some companies and conducted depositions with witnesses who had worked there. From your perspective, what was it like to be conducting this work? Was it like pulling teeth to get information? How easy or hard was it? It was very interesting because, like I said, I, I came in and kind of had to hit the ground running very quickly. So it was really something to walk in, you know, the first day and be handed a binder and, and told, you know, this is from a witness um, whose identity needs to be protected, and these these files don't exist digitally. Keep this locked in a drawer, which is which really happened. But uh, some people were willing to talk to us on record. You know, I I kind of felt like a journalist in many ways um, because I would I would reach out to people. Um, sometimes they would ignore me. Sometimes they would get back to me, and then I would tell them, "Look, we can have a conversation in which I use your name for the congressional record, and you go down in history as someone who spoke to us about this, or I can." attribute it to someone anonymous that isn't as helpful for our report and our evidence process, but you know, you've got to protect yourself. Or um we can we can have coffee and um this can just live in my head and help inform the rest of the work I do, but never go on paper. And people availed themselves of all of those options, just depending on their individual circumstances. Um 
you know, we talked to it was it was easier to talk to ex platform employees, of course, because if you work at a company and you're talking to Congress about that company, that company's lawyers um, will really insist on being involved. Uh, but you know, I I was able to sort of scout out a few relevant people who we wanted to talk to, as well as um, I spent a tremendous amount of time just wading through tens of thousands of pages of documents. That we we use a a sort of legal software to triage um, and find sort of like relevant documents or documents that are related to one another. But it was a lot of material to sort of read and process, and it's uh, difficult, I think, for outsiders to parse because sometimes they're email chains without much broader context or, or or memos that might be very technical. You know, a company like Facebook is sort of its internal organization is very fluid, uh, and so you, it's it's difficult without spending a lot of time on it, thinking about it too understand what part of the company, like the thing you're looking at might represent and whether or not it's the full picture. And so uh, that was also very time consuming, just spending a lot of time with those documents. We also received briefings from platform staff. They would they would volunteer people to come forward and talk to us about sort of specific topics on which they had um, kind of specialized knowledge. Um, so, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a pretty wide ranging investigation. We used human sources. We used uh, sometimes things in the press. You know, you don't, you don't need to ignore the open source just because you have access to privileged information. But I, I, I really, uh, like I said, I, I needed to get a significant amount of work done in a, in a relatively short amount of time so that, you know, so we, we could make sure we'd done our due diligence on this issue. Were there particular companies that stuck out as particularly easy or hard to work with? It was interesting to see them all use different strategies in dealing with us. Um, some of them gave us a tremendous volume of documents. And I think the strategy may have been partially to bury us in in paperwork, right? I, I used to joke that I was investigating more than a trillion dollars worth of, of corporate activity, but the American public just had me. But others, you know, others were not forthcoming and would sort of rely on a First Amendment defense um, saying, you know, like, you know, too much congressional inquiry into our content moderation processes could have a chilling effect on our, our corporate speech rights. We never went to court over that. Um, we were able to get at that element of the investigation through other avenues, but um, that would have been an interesting court case because, you know, in, in many previous cases, the courts had found that the committee's sort of uniquely weighty interest in getting to the bottom of the circumstances around the TAC really won a lot of balancing tests in the court of law. And then finally, um, you know, some companies were very cooperative and put a lot of staff in front of us, but you know, you had to work with them quite a bit to find the right staff to ask the right questions to. And that can be very time consuming because, you know, just in the scheduling process, it can really draw things out and you can, um, you know, it can, it can sometimes be a stalling tactic. And you had to be sort of aware that the companies off, in many different ways were trying to to run out the clock. You know, I think they hoped that that ultimately they would be exonerated and that they needed to to be cooperative or to appear to be as cooperative as they needed to be under the law. But, you know, they, they were really hoping we would, uh, you know, that they would walk out of this with sort of a, a clean image. And so in that respect, was your perspective that the fact that the committee was on a really on a ticking clock when it came to how long it would be around, was that sort of affecting how you were able to conduct the investigation if these companies were able to say, you know, we can, we can kind of string them along <laughs> because they won't be here forever? I think so. Yeah. I mean, the committee very famously subpoenaed several of the companies before I joined the staff. And that was, a, I'm going to say it's an unprecedented action. Someone will immediately point out another congressional subpoena that's gone to a, a, a corporation. But 
you know, it was a big step. And that was because they had not been getting the the kinds of information they were seeking. Um, and it took time for those subpoenas to go out. It took time for the companies to then begin combing through their 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 records to comply with the subpoenas. Um, and then, of course, uh, they needed to move staff around to then deal with that, that volume of incoming content. I mean, the, the committee was constantly hiring. Like, their people were... At one point, at one point, this committee was just like the members and a few high-level staff, and then it just grew and grew and grew from there. I mean, when I left, they were getting ready for the hearings, and it seemed like there was a new communications consultant every single day. You would just, you know, one day there was one guy at a conference table with a laptop, and um, he just multiplied into like twelve people by the time I left. So, you know, the capacity was an issue just because of the time. The money was no object, but you know, they needed to get this done within one congressional term. And uh, that meant throwing people at it um, because you, you didn't have all that long to get the material and to process it uh, and then to produce um, output, right? The last six months of the committee's existence was dedicated probably, you know, 90% to uh, hearings, report writing, and, and, and making sure that those findings reached the public. So speaking of, of findings reaching the public, I, before we go any further, I want to talk about the elephant in the room which is that we're talking about the social media portion of the investigation. A lot of that didn't make it in to the final report. So I'm curious what you make of that. Did the committee make a mistake in your view in not including it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, There's been a lot of discussion around that. I think it's important to back up and recognize first off that I really viewed myself as coming in and doing a job on behalf of the committee, right? They asked me to, to do work. I did it to the best of my ability. But I am not a decision maker in the, the ultimate findings of Congress. That role belonged to the, the elected representatives on the committee. And they had a decision early in their work together. They were going to work by consensus um, to the extent possible. And when you have a committee as diverse as you know Liz Cheney to Adam Schiff, that the the band of consensus might be rather narrow. And so the committee made strategic decisions about what to focus on. Now, I do think, and I should say also that those strategic decisions in many ways paid off. I mean, those hearings attracted a lot of views. I think it was very smart to focus um, on a very tight story with a main character for national TV. For the report, I always did hope that they would take a more expansive view, that they would step back and really ask, how did we get to this point? How did extremism in America get this bad that a mob would try to overthrow the election? And uh, are we still in danger? And I, my strategy would have been, if it were my choice to make, of course, to, to take the time to reflect on those questions. And the report, I think, would have been the place to do it because most of the people who watched that hearing are not going to read the report. The report will be read by historians and analysts and journalists, but you know, not by your average voter. And so in, in the report, you, you you do have room, I think, to be more thoughtful and, and to take a broader view. That's a, that's a difference of opinion in strategy. Obviously, there were differences of opinion about that between the committee members. And in the end, that's not the choice they made. But I think you can see that there's a great deal of interest in those questions because stuff keeps coming out, right? It's uh, and not just about social media, about other issues too. You you keep sort of getting a trickle of new information from the committee's findings. And so those things are entering the public conversation. And I think that's very important because I don't think that the 
danger of events like January 6th is past or or behind us. I think that the risk to American democracy will will outlive President Trump's political relevance. Um, and I, you you, see, you continue to see isolated instances of violence that point to a larger pattern of of continu- the continued risk of really domestic terrorism in the United States. Yeah, I do want to talk about the continued risk of terrorism along those lines. But before we do that, let's dig into some of the findings that you actually put together. So um, among the materials that sort of come into the public eye since the release of the formal January 6th committee report is this draft report on social media um, written by your team, which the Washington Post published in, in full. So confining ourselves just to the report itself rather than you know the process of the Post reporting or anything like that. Tell me a little bit about what this document is. Yeah, so this is this the Post published this draft document. Um, I think it's around 122 pages, and it's important to stress at the outset that this is a, a draft. This was this is you know kind of live uh, work product from the committee. Um, it didn't go through the the kind of proofing and quality control and fact checking process that uh, things that end up in the final report do. It's really, I think, the the basis of it was actually a sort of seventy five page thing that I wrote as a, a sort of legacy product, right? Because I was I was going to continue part time, um, kind of in the evening as needed, but uh, my full time with the committee ended at the end of May, and I needed to encapsulate all of the um, kind of everything I had learned so for their use, uh, and I, I kind of merged that with. Um, some of the work um, my colleagues had done to create a, a sort of like summary of the social media findings to that point. Over the summer, um, kind of after the hearings, I spent some time with them again, like updating that, polishing it, expanding it with um, any new findings that they had captured in the intervening months. Uh, and that's that's really, I think, what that document in the post is. I think it is, um, I don't think it has been changed or updated since that point. I think it is like the work of the social media team as it stood when it was decided that it wasn't going to become a chapter in the report. You know, that was work product that me and uh, three other people uh, spent a significant amount of time on. And it really summarizes, I think, almost all of the findings as we would have presented them to the public if the committee had decided to do that. So let's talk about those findings then. There, there's a, a lot going on um, in this document, and I, I don't want to necessarily go through by chapter and verse because that would take a while. But one of the main threads that's sort of prominent throughout the document is you read that, quote, shoddy content moderation and opaque inconsistent policies were a larger contributor to January 6th than the admittedly not insignificant role played by recommendation algorithms. So I do want to talk about the algorithm question. But before we do that, tell me about the role of these shoddy content moderation and inconsistent policies in sort of creating the circumstances under which the insurrection could happen. Yeah. When you read that sentence out loud, it sounds much wonkier than it did when uh, we wrote it. But so first I want to say, um, you know, sometimes we fall into a back and forth about like, well, did social media cause the insurrection? And I think that is a straw man argument. I think it's a straw man sort of way of framing the issue. Um, the issue is it's really a due diligence argument we're making. Did social media companies do what they could and should have done to prevent themselves from being used as tools to organize and to popularize the myths behind the insurrection. So with that out of the way, you know, the the shoddy content moderation policy, you know, it varies across platform. But, you know, for example, on YouTube, uh, they passed a 
policy against election delegitimization, I think is the, the word that a lot of these companies use, you know, denying the outcome of the election. Uh, in early December, after the safe harbor deadline for states to file their electoral votes. But there's a 30-day window in which any new YouTube policy doesn't result in the removal of a channel, right? It just results in sort of a maybe the video is taken down and a warning. But 30 days after the safe harbor deadline takes you actually right up to January 6th. Um, so in, in, in a, at a critical time like the, uh, you know, the interregnum between presidencies, you know, you, you had this sort of grace period that um, in retrospect was was problematic. And I think it, it really reflects a mistake many people made to think that, wow, whoo, the voting is over, the election is done, we have a winner, the threat is passed, when actually the threat would come just before the inauguration. And you saw that in Brazil too, right? The threat wasn't on. Election Day, the threat came actually in Brazil after the inauguration. You know, I, at Facebook, they didn't have a policy against election delegitimization. And there's a debate about whether or not that is defensible. But Facebook also didn't have a way to, and this this comes out in some of the documents leaked by Francis Haugen too, they didn't have a, a way to really respond to something like um, the Stop the Steal movement. They They didn't have policy levers they could pull to say, wow, all of this is getting really nasty really fast across many, many Facebook groups, and uh, we probably shouldn't allow it to continue to metastasize. In a conversation we had with Facebook, they sort of talked about policies they've developed since January 6th about like being able to say, wow, this movement across many groups, while it is not accruing sort of strikes for policy violations uh, at a level in any one specific group where we can take it down, it is contributing to a significant a statistically measurable increase in these kinds of harms. And so we can then act against the movement as an actor. Uh, at the time, you know, they this was a really new idea. Uh, they had used it against um, – they had used similar policies against QAnon and other movements, but they, they declined to do so against Stop the Steal. And that was, you know, that was a mistake. Um, and then Twitter, of course, I think the, the content moderation issues have become infamous because we, we were able to get whistleblowers who were involved with those decisions to speak about them on the record and – the debate over Twitter's decisions continues with, you know, all of the press coverage of the Twitter files and upcoming congressional hearings. But, uh, you know, at Twitter, they really – people were advocating as early as the presidential debates. And really, I mean, even during the um, the Black Lives Matter protests over the preceding summer about the need to be able to do something about violent speech that, um, that might be coded or that didn't cross a line into, uh, you know, direct threat. And Twitter internally – debated what to do about that and at the executive level decided not to do anything. And the team was really, you know, the team continued to warn that uh, violence was brewing. And uh, they were right on January 5th, you know, in a staff meeting of the trust and safety team, they said, you know, people could die tomorrow. And, you know, Twitter had a, has an opportunity to do something to maybe prevent that and is, and is not doing that. And unfortunately, that person was exactly right. So then, of course, that that raises the question of, you know, why didn't leadership at these companies want to take these more aggressive measures? And one of the answers that it, it seems to me after reading this draft report that you provide is that there was a feeling of intense political pressure coming from the Republican Party and the right that really influenced major platforms like Meta and Twitter. And when it comes to Meta, there's a particular sort of quirk in the organizational structure of the company where the people who are, you know, working on policy matters in, in DC 
are overseeing the people who work on what's called integrity. Um, that's something we learned from the Francis Haugen leaks um, and I think comes through really clearly. But tell me a little bit more about that dynamic across these different companies, because that that seemed to me to be one of the major takeaways of what you'd written. Yeah, I, I uh, that was a major takeaway um, for me as well. I think the the point about meta is very important. Um, like corporate structure, I think does matter here because there's a, a public policy team that you know gets gets sort of way in and whose approval is required for many content moderation policies and decisions. And the public policy team's uh, incentives and goals are are to protect the company from political risk. Right? It's not to protect users from uh, the risk of harm on the platform. And and those two motives ideally would be disentangled. But it's complicated somewhat by the fact that Twitter, you know, this distinction does exist and it's actually the trust and safety head who's hedging their bets politically. And now Twitter is a much smaller company than Facebook. I once called Twitter a, a small company in a briefing and everyone uh, everyone shook their head at me. But it is really – it's not nearly as big as Facebook. So their corporate structure is, um, you know, I think in, in many ways simpler uh, and might not matter quite as much. But – you really did see. I mean, at Facebook, there's a documented now pattern of overruling policies um, to make exceptions for right-leaning publishers, for example, right-leaning news pages. You know, the the exemptions around fact-checking policy for political candidates. Like there were um, kind of explicit conversations about like why it would be important for Trump to have or not have those. And Twitter, you really saw like in the reasoning process around this violent incitement policy, uh, a lot of um, kind of logical leaps, I would say, a lot of cherry picking of data. The teams, the team that drafted that policy worked really hard to put together analysis and evidence for it. And um, the the counter arguments that the executives came up with were really not compelling, right? They sort of hand waved away all of that work and, um, you know, were not willing to do it because they, they knew that these policies would fall disproportionately on right-wing users. I talked to one Facebook data engineer who I um, think really put this really well, he said that they were, the companies are more concerned with equality of outcome, not equality of process, right? They, the companies want to design rules that are able to treat people on the political right with a light touch because they're very afraid of accusations of censorship, very afraid of accusations of bias, but they know they need a process in place. So they design processes not with the intent of, say, reducing violent rhetoric as much as possible or reducing divisive content as much as possible uh, or reducing misleading content as much as possible that is on policies that they can then say, well, this was applied equally across the board and this was the outcome. Um, They don't want to write a policy against violent rhetoric because if it turns out most of the violent rhetoric is on the right, it will look like to some audiences they are censoring conservative speech when what they're really doing is applying a violent rhetoric policy even-handedly. So the the even-handed policy application can't be uh, too significant or it'll it'll raise political hackles. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I mean, that, that strikes me as, in some ways, raising a genuinely difficult question for a social media company right now. Um, and I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit here, but make me let me make the best case that I can make for that approach, which is that, you know, you're, say, you're, you're a big social media company in the United States. You have a wide swath of users across the political spectrum. There is a genuinely a large chunk of your user base and a large chunk of the political leadership of the United States, you know, half of Congress, uh, the president, a lot of people in the current administration who really believe that, you know, the election was stolen or to switch topics to the pandemic that, you know, the coronavirus vaccine will will harm you or something like that. And you could have a neutral policy that would then wipe a lot of those people off the platform or or diminish their reach in some way. But at that point, you have kind of picked sides in a way. So what are companies supposed to do there in your view? What like what is the best way of resolving it? Is it just to say, you know, damn the torpedoes, we're gonna come up with our policy about what we think is the right thing to do? you know, and and stick to it? Or is there any extent to which those kind of considerations about the political community that you're serving can acceptably enter into the policymaking process? This is such a great question. I'm so glad you asked it. Um, you put your finger right on kind of the pulse of the debate, I think. I think we, we are asking a lot of corporations to govern this kind of speech. These corporations have also sort of put themselves in the business of privatizing the digital public square. So I don't feel too bad for them. But it's true that it's a big responsibility and that it is a lot of power to give a corporation. I think – I hate to say it because it sounds flimsy as a policy recommendation. But time and time again, when I would ask people about this, they would say transparency, transparency, transparency. These policy decisions should actually be happening much more in public view. There should be much more public deliberation and input. And uh, I think things like the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act, which require like more data sharing, are um, essential because we actually don't know how the sausage is made. One of the achievements of this investigation, I think, is actually um, kind of pulling off the lid and continuing to to shine some public light on how these decisions do get made because they're important decisions. And um, there deserves to be a robust public debate between people of different opinions about about these things. In that debate, you know, it should be in good faith. I don't think the conversation about social media often is in good faith. Um, but the public deserves to, I think, really um, scrutinize these types of things, what they're asking platforms to do. I think it would be better if platforms did sort of think about what types of principles and values they want to see if they, if, they, if they value something like, say, quality in journalism and if they wanted to boost that. That's a decision they could make. That's a decision the public could could weigh in and say that would be a, a good decision. But it, it it's right. It's true that um, these these companies want very hard want very much to be seen as apolitical when really that's impossible because they are the editors in the way of the internet. You know whether it's through the content policies that they write and enforce or don't write and don't enforce, or through the algorithms that they designed to put stuff in front of your eyeballs. They are 
and I, I think they hate this. I, I honestly, I think this is very uncomfortable for them, but, but those are editorial decisions. And so we kind of need, um, some equivalent of a public editor, right? We need some way for the public to weigh in and say like, no, these are the values we want the internet's editors to be making. And, and really maybe, I mean, if you really zoom out, maybe, um, maybe private corporations shouldn't be the editors of the digital public square, but that's, that's an even bigger policy leap. Right. And this, this brings me to something I found really interesting in the, the broader release of materials um, from the committee. So the, the draft report cites a number of times an interview with Brian Fishman, who at, uh, during the insurrection oversaw Meta's policies on what the company calls dangerous organizations. And uh, the transcript of the interview is publicly available thanks to the government publishing office. I would definitely recommend listeners who are interested go and take a look at that tranche of material because it's incredible. Um, and one of the things I found interesting about that interview with Brian is that he says over and over again that he thinks that Facebook should have taken down material more aggressively in advance of the six. And he also thinks that even if it had done that, that would not have stopped the violence because there was so much anger in the political ecosystem from Trump, you know, giving speeches on Fox News. And so I think that that kind of gets to this tension where the role these companies play, as you say, is extremely important. And yet they're also responding to and existing within the same political and media ecosystem that everything else is. So do you agree with him there? I thought, you know, Mr. Fishman was very insightful. And I I think that interview is definitely worth reading for students of these topics. I mean, one thing that sticks out to me that Mr. Fishman told us was essentially that if if there had been a policy against denying the outcome of the election, the hammer would have had to come down on most of the conservative media ecosystem, which is which doesn't seem like a sustainable response. Now, the the thing about like this wouldn't have stopped. There's nothing Facebook could have done to stop the violence. That's the straw man I'm talking about earlier, right? So there's a way in which this is sort of, and I'm not the first person to say this, but you know, political radicalism might be too big of a problem to solve just through tech policy. But tech policy plays a part, um, and, and the actions the companies take do matter, and. So I think they should be interrogated. I, and you know, Mr. Fishman also did say that he would have advocated for um, Stop the Steal to have been you know, treated as a, a, a potentially violent movement, which would have um, created a more holistic response on the part of Facebook. It would have activated options for content moderators that they didn't have. Now, there's a, a sort of bigger academic debate to be had about, you know, because one of the points Mr. Fishman makes that I think is very, very important is that the the role of violent rhetoric from our political leaders can't be really overstated and that is becoming more common. I mean, I'm I'm old enough that my like political awakening was around the same time as thing events like the Gabby Gifford shooting and you had Sharon Angle who was a candidate for Congress saying that you know, if if things didn't work out at the ballot box, they could always reach for the bullet box and at the time this was kind of brushed off as uh you know, isolated incidents of disturbed individuals or or just overheated rhetoric, but I, I really think if you follow the trend line, you can see now that we're in a whole new world in terms of the normalization of, of violent rhetoric by political leaders. And that makes it hard, first off, to distinguish real threats from just campaigning. But it also raises the temperature of politics to a dangerous boiling point and uh, it takes it to a place where I, I believe Mr. Fishman says, you know, it's hard to walk back from. Now, there's this kind of larger question about the role of social media in our politics, right? Social media has changed or at least amplified and accelerated a lot of media trends that reward sort of more extreme speech, more sensational speech, more vitriolic speech. What I think as a, a sort of analyst of these topics and my my sort of 
think tank job outside of the committee is that there's a, a sort of dangerous feedback loop in which politicians are rewarded for for kind of more combative, sometimes more violent rhetoric. Uh, that feeds into the social media ecosystem, generates a ton of engagement, a ton of media activity, then thus strengthening the incentives for politicians to conduct that behavior again. Um, and I think that Donald Trump helped build and then rode that roller coaster for several years. That's I, I think that's a conversation we should have about you know it goes back you know to what I said about transparency. Um, that's a, that's a real academic debate. Reasonable people disagree about it. Informed people disagree about it. To get to the bottom of it, we would need data access, right? We would we we deserve to know what's happening on these platforms, how they work, and the effect they're having on on our societies. These are these are really serious issues. I the world isn't run by tech policy, but tech policy definitely has an impact on the world. So I'd mentioned before that I wanted to go back to the aspect of your report about algorithms. So let, let's talk about that because you do write in the report that, and this is the quote, uh, recommendation algorithms are only part of the problem. And that really jumped out at me because it feels like algorithms have really taken a prominent role in recent years uh, in conversations around what tech platforms are, are doing wrong. Um, I mean, the Supreme Court's about to hear oral arguments in two cases later this month uh, that draws a line between acts of violence and the use of algorithmic amplification on major platforms. So I'm I'm curious for your thoughts on on this issue and how you reached that conclusion. Were you expecting that you know you would come out with this, or were, did you go into this thinking that algorithms were a bigger part of the puzzle? Yeah, that's exactly right. I um, going in, I was prepared to find evidence that platforms pulled punches for financial reasons, right? That they wanted to goose engagement metrics, and so they um, were hesitant to put in place robust safeguards and. I think I think there are elements of truth to that. There are probably instances in which that's true, but overwhelmingly, what I found was actually that the political incentives were were much more relevant, at least to the 2020 election. I want to be clear that uh, you know the 2020 election and January 6 were specific moments in time, discrete events with their own kind of motivations and drivers that that might be unique. I, you know, I, th- I think you could point to other decisions that are financially motivated, but. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, reflecting on my own focus on algorithms and my own beliefs going into the investigation, um, I, I think first what I really learned was that a lot of this activity was driven by human users, right? The Stop the Steal movement on Facebook grew through invites on Facebook groups, which were sent by actually a very small core of members of those groups sent, you know, a large a large plurality of the invitations. So, and, and Facebook had taken steps to sort of try and avoid algorithmically recommending civic groups at that time uh, as part of the break glass measures. So this is to say, like, the co- even when the company sort of tries to um, put the brakes on algorithmic boosting, uh, human activists can use this tool to organize. I mean, that's what it's designed to do, right? It's designed to connect many, many people over vast distances. And and that is what the Stop the Steal organizers used it for to great effect. It's also what, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter protesters use it for. So you, you need to have a conversation about well, is speed the enemy? Is scale the enemy? Do we want these tools to exist? And I, I think there are instances in which we clearly do, but there need to be safeguards. I think the, the really the the heavy focus on algorithms by analysts in this space and by lawmakers is is a a desire to reach for a technical level to a political problem. Algorithms, um, if what you're worried about is the quality of the information ecosystem and its impact on politics. Algorithms sort of represent a bottleneck. They represent like a, a place where you can apply pressure and maybe change that flow. But 
at the end of the day, uh, there are many drivers of political radicalism, right? Um, many people who are who are in radical spaces on the internet or in places that don't have algorithms at all, right? 4chan is just a message board. So I, I think the role of algorithms is important. I think we need to understand it. There, there's going to be more study on it. But I, I, I do think it can be overstated because at the end of the day, the way these platforms were used uh, for January 6th didn't rely on as heavily on algorithms as I thought. Um, there are other ways in which these people find each other, communicate, coordinate, and um, carry out offline actions. So I want to zig and zag a little bit and get to uh, another aspect of what you found, which has to do with the role of law enforcement. I obviously focused on this because this has been a little bit of a bugbear of mine, that the extent to which law enforcement failed to uh, prepare for the insurrection. But I was really noted how, so you say uh, social media platforms did not have significant outreach from law enforcement prior to January 6th and did not receive clear warnings of violence from law enforcement before January 6th. Uh, mostly uh, the warnings that they did get before the six were focused on preventing foreign interference. Um, so tell me a little bit about those findings. Sure. And I guess I'll start by saying that I had a colleague on the purple team, as well as the entire blue team who focused just on law enforcement issues. And so I am I'm hesitant to, to wade too much into this because uh, I don't want to step on their toes and mischaracterize their work. One of my co-authors on the memo that was released in the post, also spent quite a bit of time working um, on the investigation into extremists. And his portfolio on social media was actually like kind of the smaller platforms, which is includes many of the places where extremists kind of hang out and get to be more extreme. So he, he drove a lot of, I think, the, the inquiry into law enforcement relationships. Um, but, you know, in the documents we saw, there would be kind of routine meetings between um, platforms and government to talk about like whether they'd seen any foreign activity those meetings were characterized to us as often quite boring. Um, <laughs> and and I think it should be stressed that like the bigger platforms like Facebook and, and, and Twitter all kind of – they have internal investigators and also hire um, external firms to do sort of threat investigation. You know, people who write up sort of memos like, hey, there was this violent protest and people on uh, this other alt platform are – talking about maybe organizing another one, you should be looking out for signs of this on Facebook. You know, if they try to advertise this on Facebook, you need to have situational awareness. Um, and th and that's, that's normal. They do that all the time. Um, th this is something that frustrates me a lot about the Twitter files. It's like really anodyne regular activity is being characterized as something nefarious. But no, of course, these actors talk about talk to each other like they're, you know, this is they do this to prevent acts of terrorism. I mean, that's the genesis of these relationships. But I think, uh, you know, we were not able to find like an example of uh, – you know, a memo from the FBI that said to Facebook, hey, there's a lot of violent rhetoric about maybe storming the Capitol on January 6th. What's up with that? You know, it, it, it just that conversation doesn't seem to have happened uh, between those actors. Um, and that's I, I think that's probably representative of some of the other things that have been written about uh, the intelligence community's failure to anticipate this attack. So we've we've mentioned the Twitter files a, a handful of times. I think now is kind of a interesting time to be having this conversation because in many ways, we're, it feels like we're kind of in the midst of a backlash against the same content moderation techniques that you wrote that these companies didn't use enough of in advance of January 6th. There's obviously Elon Musk taking over Twitter, sort of dismantling many of the internal content moderation systems and putting this information out and, and skewing it about what Twitter did do to moderate content in the past. Meta has just decided to let Trump back on their platform 
in some form. I mean, when when you look at this, what do you think? Does it feel like a, a move backwards? I do think, and I, I say this also as a you know a professional who who focuses on this space that in many ways this space is moving backward. When I this goes back to I think the, the debate about whether or not to have put the social media content in the report in a way because we talked about how that was a, a decision based on strategy, but one consequence of that was the possibility that the social media findings that came from the investigation and which are now um, kind of owned and controlled by the Republican-led House of Representatives um, would be weaponized to make the exact opposite arguments. In some ways, we sort of teed up a, a debate about social media content moderation. And it was really frustrating, actually, to to realize that there were going to be hearings on this, on some of these topics with some of the people who were involved in the decisions we wrote about. And yet the committee's version of the story wasn't out there. That's changed, of course, now that the um, the memo is in the wild. But I, I do think that, yeah, the space is moving backward. I mean, Facebook's, Facebook's decision to end Trump's suspension, you know, they said is based on uh, their assessment that the risk of political violence is receding. Well, based on what? Says who? Uh, I mean, we've seen multiple acts of political violence in the past year. Um, a lot of people in this space will say like, well, the 2020 election went smoothly. It's not as if people in camouflage didn't show up to polling places in Arizona to monitor it, right? I think the risk of, of electoral violence is, is still very much with us. The public, I think, this, this goes back to transparency too. The public should know on what basis that decision was made. Yeah, in many ways, I, I do think this this space is is starting to recede. I mean, the layoff of, of trust and safety staff, I mean, there are fewer resources dedicated to this topic. It's just... Uh, you know, it, it is distressing. Is there anything that you feel like the, these major companies have gotten better at since 2020? You know, I I suspect there is. But <laughs> again, it all goes back to transparency. I can't tell you what kinds of break glass measures were or were not in place for 22, right? I can't. And I, I do want to maybe linger here on a point that I think Frances Haugen once made. I believe this quote is attributed to her. That if you live in the United States, you you get the Cadillac version of social media. Um, we have the platinum standard for content moderation here. You know, I, I focus a lot on the international context in my day job. And, you know, they don't get that in Brazil. They don't get that in Nigeria. They don't get that in Kenya. So that's important to, to remember is that as little transparency as we have and as frustrated we are with that. Here, uh, the, the problem's much worse abroad. I mean, Elon Musk closed Twitter's only office in Africa. I think he laid off everyone in Brazil except for a few salespeople. So uh, that's a big problem. Now, I, the things they might have improved on, I mean, I think it actually is a big deal that Facebook has this coordinated social harm policy, um, which I mentioned is sort of the one where they can use to say, like, uh, even though the harm isn't concentrated enough to to merit a takedown normally, um, this seems to be kind of a distributed rise in harm that's related to the same actors. So we're going to take action. Um, they didn't have that before. I think it's a smart thing to have. It's a recognition that the problems we're talking about here aren't just caused by organized actors with like leaders and payrolls. They're they're often caused now by by more loosely organized social movements. Yeah, I think that policy is a good thing. But, you know, we don't know how it's being applied elsewhere. We we still don't have a lot of, of great insight into it. So, you know, I think there are ways in which they're doing better, but, you know, there are ways in which they're doing worse and it just varies by platform. It's also really important to note that there are more platforms now. I mean, TikTok was barely a factor in the 2020 election, but you know, you can bet it'll be a factor in the 2024 election. Uh, and that's to say nothing of the 
you know, Telegram use, I think, is increasing. We have, you know, significant diasporas in the United States who use apps um, like like WhatsApp or or even WeChat, the Chinese texting app, right? Um, there will be, doubtless, there will be other websites and apps before 2024 that are released that will be part of this conversation. And so the, you know, there was a time a few years ago when if you were working in this field, you really could mostly just focus on like Facebook, Google, YouTube, Twitter, and and you'd, you'd capture like the bulk of the activity we're talking about. That time is over. Like you really have to be looking at all of them. And that means that uh, content moderation improvements at one platform have a diminishing effect on the rest of the internet. The problem just gets sort of more disparate and, and harder to control. So you've mentioned, obviously, that, you know, the United States continues to struggle with extremism, terrorism, political violence. How prepared do you think we are and social media platforms are for political violence along the lines of what we saw on the 6th? If it were to happen again, would you be surprised? Would you expect that platforms would be any better positioned to counter that? Yeah, I mean, they, you know, going back to the the decision to reinstate Trump, the that Facebook said it, it did that with sort of new safeguards for public figures. But we've seen how they, you know, those safeguards can be um, ignored when it's politically expedient. You know, there's no reason for the public to be confident that those choices won't be made again because they've been made in the past. They've shown us how in, incapable really they are of not following those incentives. So I, I don't I don't feel like we are prepared. No, I think, um, you know, hopefully there have been intelligence improvements. I can't really speak to that. Hopefully we're more aware that, that that risk exists. But I think for us to really be prepared, it would it would mean taking a hard look in the mirror um, and admitting that this this is a long-term trend that very seriously impacts um, you know, a large part of the political spectrum and that it's gonna require some some sacrifice and backbone really to control. And I I what I see actually is an eagerness to move on. Um, I mean, I think you get this in sort of Mark Zuckerberg's public statements and reporting about his attitude, right? Like he really doesn't want to be doing election work. This isn't why he started this website at Harvard when he was 20, right? This is an annoying part of Mark Zuckerberg's job. He wants to be in the metaverse where they don't have elections and there is no election violence. So I give it, I, give it time. They'll find a way. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I just I think there's everyone's sort of whether they realize it or not, a lot of people are burying their head in the sand and, and hoping that this passes by, and I'm not convinced that it will. One thing I was really struck by reading the draft report is how sort of careful and cautious your recommendations were compared to a lot of the rhetoric around tech companies right now, even among people who really do want to throw bombs at the tech companies and really do want to focus on this on both the left and the right. You know, you're you're not arguing that Section 230 should be repealed. Um, you're not arguing that tech platforms are the root of all evil. You're not arguing that, you know, the algorithm needs to be whatever that means needs to be, you know, rooted out or redone and that that will solve things. And uh, I think I'm only oversimplifying a tiny bit when I say that that is honestly what a lot of the discourse around tech platforms in Congress sounds like right now. Um, so do you feel, you know, out of step with the the zeitgeist at all in making those arguments? Is it is it harder to communicate them? So I mean, I, I do think I to react immediately is something you said, we do need to stop uh, talking about the algorithm as if it were a deity, right? There are many algorithms. It's capitalized, capitalized. Right, right. So that's that's just one point is, you know, it's actually a, a complex series of tools that are used for different purposes. And we should really be having a much more complicated conversation about that. But uh, yeah, the, the, the recommendations are, um, I would say, light touch because first off, we knew this wasn't going to be the place where those big thorny lawmaking debates get settled. But also the committee in 
ways that might be unusual, really brought in a lot of people who um, were sort of external experts on these topics and put them on teams with longer time Hill staffers. And so uh, I was lucky to work with people like Megan Conroy and Alex Newhouse, who are, are you know, both experts in the field of extremism. I brought my own perspective to this, and we worked with a very talented attorney named Jacob Glick. But we were skeptical, I think, of um, you know, some of the recommendations around 230, for example. It's a long-running discourse, and it just seems like any way you change 230, you create as many problems as you solve. So we didn't want to go there. We didn't want to we didn't want to try and solve those those kinds of questions in that space. But what I really felt when I was trying to draft recommendations was that some of the decisions for which we were criticizing the tech companies, I mean, if you read that transcript with Brian Fishman, he's right that there are trade-offs involved, right? These aren't simple decisions, but I think they are decisions that should be simple to talk about. And if we demystified the tech, pulled back the curtain on the machinery a little bit, you could actually have, I think, like a high school civics conversation about some of these issues. Um, One of the ones I keep thinking about is the issue of false positives and false negatives, right? If Facebook is using machine learning to try and find certain types of content and then demote that content based on the level of confidence that they have in, in whether or not they're right, which was a thing they did. It was a break glass measure that was apparently very impactful. Um, data engineers were felt, felt this was really promising. This means Facebook is making a value judgment about false positives and false negatives. Is it better to leave up hate speech accidentally or to accidentally remove a call for protest against police violence? Uh, those, are the, those, are the, those are the implications of the choices they're making. And they are making those choices for us behind closed doors based on their motivations, their incentives, their read of the situation. Nothing I've just said, I think, is beyond the grasp of a high school civics teacher. And I think it's also something reasonable people can disagree about. You know, I'd love to have a a spirited debate over drinks with this with like a libertarian, right? Um, And it is so much more interesting and important and nuanced than the screaming that you hear from Republican senators on Capitol Hill. Uh, I, I think we desperately need to have a good faith debate about this because it is about first principles of free speech. It's about like civics 101 stuff. It just needs to be updated for the machine age, and which is why I really think there should be some kind of like blue ribbon congressional commission to to help educate both lawmakers and the public on this. The problem is there's so much bad faith in the space that I feel like it would almost immediately be compromised. But we but we we, we really desperately need it, and I think that that conversation is both more basic and more important in many ways than the the conversations we're having about like tech law or algorithms. It's sort of a philosophical conversation, but it's not one that's beyond the grasp of everyday people. So I want to close by asking about how you're thinking about your own role right now. Um, You've written a bit about your takeaways from the investigation and just security and tech policy press with some of your colleagues. Uh, You're obviously sitting down for, for interviews. I've seen, you know, writing in interviews with some other staffers from the committee now that the investigation is complete, how are you thinking about your own public presence? Is there a sort of a responsibility to speak out about your findings, especially because they weren't included in the final report? That is such a great question and such a personal one. And I think it's really fun that you asked it. Um, thanks for the chance to talk about myself. I, you know, I'm a pretty, I think of myself as a pretty ordinary guy. I came to DC when I was uh, 23 years old. I just graduated with a master's degree in international relations. I, my first sort of full-time salary job was at a think tank 
at an international grant maker called the National Endowment for Democracy. I really thought I was going to spend my career doing kind of sleepy think tank research on spreading democratic values abroad. And all of the issues I was interested in and cared about followed me home to the United States. And suddenly I was spending a lot of time thinking about how to defend democracy in my own country. That's the journey that kind of led me to care a lot about disinformation and media and social media and its effect on our, our political system and our society. You know, that that sort of interest um, is what I carried into the January 6th committee. And coming out of it, I do think there's a responsibility to talk about it just as someone who, you know, believes in scholarship, believes in public conversation, believes in the value of knowledge and the, the importance of evidence to policymaking. Now, it's sort of, you know, I didn't really ever think I was going to be here. And actually, I, um, you know, when I got the call to ask, hey, do you want to come work for the committee? I was in the process of buying a house in Cleveland, Ohio, which is where I now live, right? Like I, I am not, uh, I, I wasn't trying to be a swamp creature for life. You know, I was leaving DC. And so, you know, I now how I think about my public presence is that I'm probably going to, it gives me some credibility when I walk into rooms with other tech policy scholars. I, um, I, I, I'm enjoying talking about it. This has been a fun podcast. I think my, you know, my moment of time in the limelight will, will fade and that's okay. But I'm really thinking about all this disinformation and tech policy work, how it actually circles back to like fundamental problems in our democracy. And, and moving to a state like Ohio, where there are so many big questions around gerrymandering and representation and racial equity and civic engagement, um, the decline of local news media, you know, these are serious challenges that exist kind of like at the at a rubber meets the road level in, in, in the states, um, which feel sometimes very distant from Washington. And I'm trying to you know, sort of reflect back on the things I've learned in Washington and figure out how I can apply them in my new hometown. So, um, yeah, it's sort of surreal to sort of suddenly be talking about these like big national issues with big audiences like lawfares when what I really was planning on doing was uh, playing with my dog in my yard. (laughs) Well, I hope you can get back to that soon. Dean, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was really great. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. You can rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and look out for our other podcasts, including The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents series on the government's response to January 6th. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.